them because it's where Jesus told them to be. And they're going up to the temple, which at that time was still standing. It was destroyed later, but they were Jews. They were Jews by birth. They were Jews by tradition and growing up. They knew the Jewish scriptures. They had studied, obviously, under Christ, who was a rabbi. And there were certain Jewish traditions. They used to pray three times a day at, I think, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m., the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. And so this is just a normal part of their lives. They were going together. They were told to wait in Jerusalem, so that's where they were. Jesus also specifically said in Matthew 28 that you will be uh, witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond. So he described Jerusalem as being the starting point of Christian ministry. So guess what? That's where they were. They're obeying Christ. They were where they were supposed to be. And that's very simple. There's nothing supernatural about this. There's nothing mystical or um, super disciplined about this. What they did was they obeyed Christ. They waited for the Holy Spirit to come. They preached when they were given the opportunity. And now they are getting on with life. The church has been established and they're going up to worship. They're going up to pray. It's just part of normal life for them. Okay, so when they meet this man, they are literally just living in their context. They're living in the town they were supposed to be in with the people God had given to each other, doing the things that God commands them to do, which is to pray, to worship him, to love him. There's nothing about what they're doing right now that we cannot immediately start doing the second our bums leave the seat. I hope this first exhortation is incredibly freeing for you. The first step to witnessing as the church is just to live as you are called in the place God called you. Now, this is not to say that sometimes God doesn't call you to do something radical or to move or to switch jobs or to radically change something about your life. Absolutely, God calls that. But in general, we can be useful right where we are. And it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing encouragement to us. The other thing that we should notice about this is that they went up to pray. And so this is not me saying, just do whatever you want. Like live, you know, live your best life now and God will use you. They are going up to worship God. They're devoted to God. And, and we can't miss that about this point is that we're supposed to live in our context with the people God has given us, but we also are supposed to be devoted to God, to worship, to pray, to spend our time thinking about how can we work that into our schedule? How can I make more time for God? How can I spend more time in his word, praying to him, meditating on him? Because that's the context where God uses us most. And it's amazing because it doesn't take anything special. It doesn't take signing up for a missions trip. It doesn't take volunteering for a certain thing or that. It's just being devoted to God, being mindful of your calling in Christ, and being mindful of the mission of the church. So number one in verse one is just, Live in the context. Live as God called you. Number two, your faith will draw attention. This is point number two in how should the church witness. This is verses two and three. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those who were entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So a man born lame cannot walk. They carried him to the gate. The beautiful gate, um, it's believed that this was the gate used for the Gentiles to enter and women. And so often you would strategically lay a poor person 
um, where women were going in because women tend to be a little bit more compassionate in general. Um, not to stereotype, but it's kind of strategic on their part to go there. Now, John and Peter happened to be going in that gate and they saw him or it was on the way or whatever it was, but that's their context. They're saying, we want this man to kind of get some kindness here. He's having a tough time. And so my point here is that your faith will draw attention. And, And the reason I say that is because as has been the case for thousands of years, I think that there's a, a natural intersection between religion and suffering. And so if you're a Christian, if you have faith in God, your faith will draw attention and it will draw opportunity because there's a natural intersection between suffering and religion. When people want to know why people suffer, they do not go ask an atheist or a naturalist because you know what the answer is? It's a cruel, cold world. That's the answering for suffering in a cruel, cold world. That's what it is. So where do people come to ask about these issues? They come to those who have faith in God, who claim to know a benevolent, loving, powerful God. Because why should people suffer? Why should a man be born lame from birth when he had done nothing wrong? You go to a Christian, you ask them, why does your God allow this suffering? I'm not necessarily going to fully answer that question for you today, but it's something that you need to recognize is going to be put to you. Your faith will draw that attention. It will draw, your, your faith will intersect you with those who are suffering, with those who are vulnerable, with those who need help. They brought the man to the temple. This is an old tradition. This is an old human reality. They didn't bring him to the pagan temple. They didn't bring him down to the marketplace. They brought him to the temple where religious people go, because those religious people might actually help him, right? I I, I thank God that there's a reputation for that, and I hope in some way we can restore that reputation here in Smith Falls or in your community. I hope that we have the reputation, hey, if somebody's suffering, bring them to the church, because they'll, they'll take care of them in some way. Even if it's people who don't know anything about the church, I hope that people just think, suffering, let's go ask those people. I I hope we can restore that reputation in some way. But nonetheless, let's continue on. So there's, there's there's a reality that as we worship God and as we believe in him and as we live that out publicly, as John and Peter were, it will draw that attention. Notice that the crippled man saw the apostles. Oh, there's some guys I need to go ask. They, they draw that attention by living out their faith in public. Um, the man had never walked before in his whole life. Now, remember, this is written by a doctor. This is physician Luke is writing this. And so I think what he wants us to know from a medical standpoint is that this man had not been in an accident or, or been b- the victim of some cruel um, coincidence. He had not even been the victim of, let's say, sin. You know, that, that he had been, uh, you know, running from the authorities after he stole something and, you know, fell and broke his leg or something. There is, th- this is not a product of natural consequence. And, and sometimes in ministry, we, we kind of want to find the consequence of somebody's suffering. I, I may be speaking to you, but I know this about myself. When somebody comes to you and says, I'm poor or I'm sick or I'm whatever, isn't there a temptation there to fit? Well, why? How did you get like that? Because sometimes we want to figure out maybe if it's their fault and we can kind of correct them before we do something good for them. 
Luke here says he was born lame from birth. There's nothing he could have done for his legs or to help them or anything. He's just, you know what? This narrative highlights that we live and we minister in the context of a sin-cursed world. Since Genesis chapter 3, when we first rebelled against God, God told them the earth is going to be cursed on account of your sin. Even the processes of nature and agriculture will suffer because of your sin. We just live in a sinful, sin-cursed world where bad things happen because it's broken from the way God made it. So you want to know why is there suffering? Well, people want to blame God for that. But instead, suffering is meant to draw our attention to the fact that we need God because he will restore, he will fix, he will repair, he will make new again. That's the gospel, my friends. The gospel of the kingdom is coming to make new. So there's your little answer maybe, but we can talk about that more if you meet somebody asking that. But the presence of evil and suffering is not an argument against God. It's an argument for God. Okay, so... Luke is saying to us in this passage, this man was just suffering because it's a sinful world. And he's a very unfortunate soul who had no opportunity to ever work. It wasn't like he could go get a job at, a, at an IT place where he could just do computer programming from his ergonomic wheelchair. If you couldn't work physically, you just could not work and you were poor. It's amazing that he survived to adulthood because children would often be abandoned or left, or, or shipped off, or not cared for, because they're just, they're a burden on society rather than a blessing. Well, that's not the way God looks at people. I also want to point out that the Christian church actually thrived very early on because of this very fact that it was known for taking care of the vulnerable. The church took a great interest in, in orphans and in the uneducated, and in, and in the rights and protections and dignity of women. The church was drawn to and, and drew these people into family in ways that the pagan world did not. And this is why Christianity spread so quickly in one way. Because it showed a concern for the people that the rest of the world had no concern for. It's amazing. It's an amazing testimony of the church. James one twenty seven says this. James was likely a brother of Jesus, he said this, pure and undefiled religion is this. He got it. This is what undefiled religion is, that you care for the orphan and widow and keep yourself unstained from the world. So throughout our scriptures, we recognize that there is something legitimate about the intersection between those who are suffering and the Christian faith. We, we cannot just ignore that reality and say, well, just accept Jesus in your heart and everything will be okay. That's not the gospel message. There is something imperative about the way we enter into people's suffering. And so this point, number one, live as God called you. Number two, recognize your place in answering that question. Recognize that your faith will draw attention to that. And so I want to encourage you to understand and become comfortable with the reality that what you believe is going to draw questions and sometimes will demand your response. And that's not a bad thing. People should hold us to a high standard. People should ask us hard questions. And I pray that we are ready to give an, an answer and a reason for the hope that is in us, as Peter says. So, our faith will draw attention. That's what's happening here. The man came to the temple and he noticed John and Peter. He turned his hands up and he asked for money. Alms, by the way, are just a, a cultural word for 
charitable donation. He was there looking for enough money to buy a meal for that day so he could survive. So verses 4 and 5, what do they say? Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. Number three, notice, number two is understand and notice that your faith will draw attention and it will garner the attention especially of the vulnerable and the weak and the suffering. Number three is seize the moment. How should the church witness? Live in the context you're called. Recognize that your faith will draw attention. And number three, seize the moment. What did we just see? Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And they said, look at us. So make the most of the opportunity. This is amazing. They don't walk past the dude mumbling some cliche about, you know, God bless you. I mean, James, in his book that we just quoted, he actually says, if you say to somebody, go and be warmed and be filled, but you do nothing to help them, your faith is kind of bonkers, upside down, possibly even worthless. They don't walk by, by saying, you know, oh, we, um, that's sad. I'm, I hope just trail off and get going, as I've done many times when I walk past somebody suffering, right? We're, we're all guilty of this, I'm sure. But they stop they seize the moment. They fix their gaze on this poor man. And they ask him to look at him. That is key. Notice this little moment of humanity here. The man had not been looking at him, which means he had had his head down and his hand up asking for money. He didn't even feel the worth to look into their eyes or to talk to them directly. This man was just about hopeless in and of himself. He felt worthless. He felt like a burden. He felt like the way people treated him. He felt like a burden. He just asked just a little bit, guys, just for today's lunch. That's all I need. But instead, they fix their gaze on him and they say, look at us. They call his eyes up. I just think that's such a beautiful picture of Christian ministry. They call his eyes up to look, to engage with us. We can fall into two ditches here. You know, Number one, we can, we can give somebody money, you know, toss it in a hat on our way by, and there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But what if we would stop and say, hey, like, I don't have much money to give you or whatever, but look at me. Because sometimes what people lack most in an amazing way that the gospel actually delivers to humanity is to give human connection to give human relationship, to actually bind people in and introduce them to people, humanity. And, and the world, without the gospel, you see this desperately happening right now in our culture, is, is veering and careening towards desperate isolation. We're the most digitally connected society in the history of humanity. I can literally access 200 different people from my phone right now. And yet everybody has that power. Most people have more friends than me online. And yet they feel desperately lonely. They feel desperately lost. So why, does the, why do we so talk about getting together as the church? You know why? Because the gospel is the answer to the, to the loneliness that humanity has, the isolation. We were never meant to live that way. The gospel gives an answer. The gospel introduces relationship and connection and builds that up into a family. Like you're sitting beside your family members right now. I just love that picture. 
And I honestly believe that the Christian message is first personal. It's first personal. It's not strictly propositional. It's not strictly, here are the things you need to know, and now you need to recite them back to me, and now you're a Christian. We, we often don't understand the mysteries that are going on when somebody hears the gospel or how we interact with them on a relational level. Some of you might think, well, I have a friend who doesn't know the Lord, and I've been hanging out with them for two, three, four years, and I've never given them the, the gospel, and you feel guilty maybe. But do you know that just your relationship with them might in some ways be such a powerful testimony of the God that you serve? You might be the only friend who's willing to sit down and look them in the eye and talk about real life. And trust me, those are the kind of relationships where you will find it easiest to share the truth of repentance and the gospel and sin and forgiveness when that time comes. But your investing in those relationships is so important. It's so key for the Christian community to be known again for this, for humanity, for relationalism. Not to let the man's eyes just look downward because they could have done any number of things, but they called his eyes up to him. I love this too, is that they're not haphazard, but they're bold and they're confident. So they look over and they're like, look at us. Look at us. And then... He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Oh, these guys are serious. They might give me a lot. Because again, one of the reasons why they went to the temple was a lot of religious people liked to show off when they gave, right? Pharisees were cut down for this all the time. You like to go and wear your big robes and blow the trumpet when you give to the poor. Can you imagine how silly that is? But sometimes we do it in our hearts, right? The Pharisees would go out and they would have somebody play the trumpet while they gave to the poor. So this guy thought, oh, these guys are about to make a big show, which means I'm getting a big payday here. Not so at all. This is amazing. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. So I love this, is that they are confident and they're bold. They do not apologize for having the truth, knowing the truth, or for speaking the truth. As I hate to say, I really think that that characterizes us in the church so often. We're so afraid to step on toes. We're haphazard. We're kind of, we're indirect. Yet we don't see that at all with the apostles. You will never see a timid apostle in the book of Acts. They were just men like us. They weren't divine, but certainly there was a boldness that accompanied their message that I think is integral to us. And so they're seizing the moment. This is all in the context of seizing the moment. I love this though, because... They recognize that if the church does not answer that question, if the church does not step in and and speak to that reality, the watching world will notice and they will provide a counterfeit gospel. They will provide a counterfeit explanation where the void is left by us. If we do not speak, that vacuum will not stay empty. False truth will creep in. False identity will creep in. False gods will creep in. So again, how often does the church look out at the world and say, you know, shame on you for sliding the way you are. Shame on you for the way you're going. Guess whose watch that's happening on? Ours. We are the ones who provide the truth and the answers to the world. And so if they are dying and lost, we need to get up and work and speak and love. We don't have the luxury of sitting back and saying, look at it, it's just, it's just going to hell. It just proves that we're right. The church needs to say, these are, these are our responsibility. They're bold and they're confident and they're accurate and they're concise 
I love this too, that not having money did not deter the apostles. Sometimes we think we have nothing to offer if we don't have money, right? We walk past a homeless person. We don't see homelessness in Smith Falls is not visible, by the way. You're not going to see somebody on the street usually. They're, they're couch surfers. There are a lot of youth who don't live with their parents. Okay, we need to be on the watch for the suffering in places that are not as obvious. But so often we think, oh, I don't have money. I can do nothing I can do. Not at all. The apostles are like, we don't have a dime. But it doesn't stop them from stopping to talk, does it? In other words, they did not run a felt needs ministry. They didn't think if we can just give people what they think they need, maybe they'll come to Christ. That's, that's very popular in our world today. Oh, we just need to find out what people want and give it to them, and then they'll know that, I don't know. I mean, it's good maybe to give money or whatever, but they did not run a felt needs ministry. They said, we don't have money, but what you actually need, we can give you. Would you like that? I love that. So the apostles are aiming to give something more valuable than a meal. They would distinguish eternal blessing from temporary blessing. And I think we also must do the same when we engage the lost. Now, I want to share four quick points on poverty. uh, Because this is where things can get very confusing for us. And we can really have divided opinions on us. And I want to help us to think in a unified way about poverty and maybe even acts of kindness. Uh, Number one, Christians cannot be unconcerned about people's physical condition. As we, as I just mentioned in James, if you say, if somebody comes to you hungry or cold and you say, you know, go be warm and be filled, go find what you need somewhere else, then your faith is useless. So the Bible does not give us permission to ignore living conditions or quality or suffering or any of that. So that's number one. We need to be concerned about it. Okay? We're not just the guardians of the spiritual stuff. Like, oh, a a sick, dying person, I'll just go give the gospel and then hopefully something good will happen to them. Or sometimes in a way, we we just want to pray that something better will happen, but we don't do anything about it. So anyway, that's number one. Number two, we need to place suffering and poverty in its correct place in the world. As Luke was pointing out to us, we live in a sin cursed world. We live in a world where suffering uh, is there. Christ himself said to his apostles, you will always have the poor with you. Literally always. So ultimate poverty eradication cannot be the paramount goal of Christianity. We can't say, well, there's still poor people, so we must be failing. We, we don't gauge the growth of the kingdom based on how much physical suffering we alleviate. We need to recognize that because so often we, we get this guilt complex like, oh, we haven't emptied all the hospitals. You know, like if there's a church of faith, why are there still hospitals? Well, because the world is still cursed by sin. And, and, and we use that as a vehicle to preach the gospel. So poverty relief is not the paramount expression of Christianity. Number three, charity has always been important to God. Always. In the Old Testament, there were laws that pertain to charity, that you were to leave your, your field to rest every seventh year and the poor could come and gather whatever grew. So you didn't till it, you didn't do anything, you just leave it alone for a whole year. The poor could come and gather their food and whatever they didn't collect, the animals could come and eat. And the edges of your field were meant to be left so that the poor could come and glean. Glean means to come and actually harvest yourself. So they weren't told, you know, in the Old Testament, harvest all your fruit and then go on like a door-to-door, you know, meals on wheels. They said, just let the poor come and 
partake of your wealth a little bit. Let them come and work alongside you to get what they need. So charity has always been important to God. So when we see suffering or want, our response should not be to protest and, and suddenly get all up in arms and say, we need to have a program to make sure that this person never suffers again. That's also not the response of the church. Do you know what true charity is? It's to see a need, it's to see a suffering, and to give from love because you love that person. That's what true charity is. Charity is another word for love. In some translations, they're interchangeable. It's just love. Just love that person. Don't go blame somebody else for their suffering. Just love them. Okay, so that's number three. Uh, number four, charity should also be a fulfillment of our words. They should be a confirmation of our words. Uh, sometimes, I don't know what's true about us, but sometimes we're very good at sharing the gospel verbally. This is what you need to believe. This is what happened. This is what God did. Uh, he loves you so much. Beautiful truth. But charity comes in and, and lifts up our words and confirms them to that person. An act of love confirms the words of love that we're saying. Do you see that? It's kind of like working with two sides of the brain. You tell somebody they're loved, and then you also make them feel loved at the same time. That's a powerful testimony to them. In, in other words, our actions need to match our words. That's as simply as I can put that. Um, okay, so seize the moment. That's a long section for seize the moment, um, but it's just so packed. I have to mention this too. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, the people bring a, a lame guy to Jesus. I think it's, I, I was going to go there. Matthew chapter 8, I think it is. Oh, 9. Behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is sto so strategic here. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. In another gospel, it says that they were thinking, he's blaspheming because who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus read their thoughts. And he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So I want to have that in our minds as we go into this next section. Have that as a paradigm, the way Christ healed that man as we go into this section uh, in verses 6 and 7. So he fixed his eyes on them, expecting to receive something. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and began to walk. Number four in our outline for how should the church witness is do something good. Kind of already covered that in our description of poverty, but just do something good. Do something good. As you go in about your witness, do something good. The apostles bypass the need for money, but they have none, so that's a simple decision for them. But they instead use his cry for help as an opportunity to provide real help. And so, as I said before, evil is for us an opportunity, can be a vehicle for sharing the gospel. Now, 
there's a danger here to just jump on somebody's suffering and throw cliches at them like, I, I, I'm not going to ad-lib that, but do you know what I mean? When somebody's suffering and you just kind of blanket it with some Christian cliche, like, you know, everything happens for a reason, which I suppose is somewhat biblical, but they use his suffering as an opportunity. You know, we don't have money to give you, sir, but we have something different. We have something better. And so they, they heal him. They command him to get up and walk. So right here, you're like, okay, how should the church witness? This seems like a pretty big step. Like, do we need to heal the lame in order for the gospel to go out? Chapter 2, I didn't really dwell on this a lot in our last message on this, but chapter 2 already showed us and taught us that the church witnessed a lot of supernatural signs in those first 30, 40 years. They witnessed a lot. In fact, the Bible says that many signs and wonders were being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. That's a phrase that sadly gets left behind in a lot of the analysis of Acts. Sometimes we preach through Acts thinking, look, we're going to get back to Acts where God is doing all these miraculous things. The Bible is actually very clear that the apostles were responsible for the miraculous signs, not the general church, not the lady. It just wasn't a, was not an expectation that people had. Now, parenthesis or ellipsis or whatever the does God still heal people? Absolutely. Does God still provide miraculous signs at times in certain situations? Absolutely. Absolutely. The normative experience for the church is that the apostles in that first generation of ministry were responsible for doing these signs in order to prove that their message was actually from God. Okay, because as we know, even when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus went and died again at some point. Okay, even when people are filled in their stomachs when Jesus multiplied the food, they got hungry again. When Jesus turned water into wine, the wine got drunk and the jars were empty. Even all of the signs that Christ did were exactly that. They were signs. They were signs pointing to another reality. As we just read with that healing, Jesus first forgave his sins. That's the eternal work. That's the work that will last past death. You want to make sure that miracle has taken place in your heart before you start seeking other miracles. You want to make sure your sins are forgiven. That's job number one. But what happens? They say, oh, you don't have the authority to forgive sins. What do they do? They challenge his authority. In the same way, the apostles' authority was also challenged. But what does Jesus do? So that you will know that I can forgive sins, get up and walk. That's the easy part. I can calm the waves. I can multiply the bread. I can give him a new hand. I can make him stand up and walk. He is the, Jesus is the agent of creation. Everything was made through Christ. How easy is it for him to make an injured dude healthy again? The signs are just to demonstrate his power to forgive. And the same was true of the apostles. The same was true of the apostles. They said to this man, you can get up and walk. We have the authority to do that. But the average Christian in that time didn't go around casting demons out and healing the sick. It just, it's not recorded for us. There are many miracles, absolutely, and God still does perform miracles through people. But I just want to stress that the, 
the purpose of the miracles was to demonstrate the truth and the validity and the authority of what the apostles were saying. Because when you go out and you're preaching to Jews who pretty much are like God's people and they have the temple and they have the commandments and you go to them and you say, I have a message from God. Not going to be really well received. So what happens? God allows them to heal a man and to go into the temple with them to prove that God is with this work. God has sent his spirit to these people and this is his work. So you don't get to argue with it. And if you do, you're a fool. And in fact, later in the book of Acts, the, the dudes sit down. Is it the Jewish leaders? They sit down and they're like, we should kill these apostles. They're causing so much trouble. And the one guy's like, well, if this is from God, you don't want to kill them. That's a bad move. Okay, that's a bad move. You don't want to kill God's people. So if it's from God, don't kill them. And he said, if it's not from God, it'll fizzle out. What a profound statement. Did the Christian gospel fizzle out? No. We are evidence of that today. So God is proving and verifying that he is with the apostles in these miracles. And so for us, what's my exhortation? Do something good. So in Instead of us saying to God and demanding from God some kind of sign, God, you need to heal this person in order that... No, we need to recognize the reality of our sin-cursed world, point people to Christ, the one who will make all things right and final in the end. And you know what? We need to do good, feed people, care for them, bind up their wounds... Give them company. Do the things that provide goodness to them, whether they're miraculous or not. I, I, would never, I, I would never want to be guilty of not doing the ordinary because I'm not seeing the miraculous, I guess is what I'm saying. And so I pray that we as a church are all about the ordinary. Because you know what? In today's day and age, the ordinary is not so ordinary. You will profoundly stand out if you just love people, care for them, visit them, make meals for them. That's why we're so about that in the church because we want to show other people God is doing something amazing among us. And it's not necessarily that we're winning the lottery. We're all, we're all getting healed of cancer. There's a lot of suffering even in this room that God has chosen not to heal. But he's doing an amazing thing among us and he has promised a final restoration through our Savior that we proclaim so do something good. I want you to also see how do these apostles describe the gift? Because this discloses an awesome reality. I'm super excited about this. I have no gold and silver, but what I do have, I give to you. What I have, Peter possesses the gift of Christ. He owns it. It's within him. It's part of him. This is the awesome reality that this passage reveals to us is that God has chosen to deposit his love and his gifts within ordinary men and women to save others. Peter's not like, you know, I know a guy who can help. You know, I, I can go pray for you. God has actually just poured out his gifts into his people. Ephesians chapter 4 says that when Jesus went up, he gave gifts to men. He chose not to just use you and me because we're around, but
but because he actually equipped each one of you with the spiritual and natural gifts to bless other people and to lead them to Christ. We are the chosen vessels, the messengers of the truth. Jesus says that word over and over in the Gospel of John. You will be my messengers. My messengers. Corinthians tells us that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are actual representatives of God to the lost. I pray that gives you confidence. Not arrogance, but confidence. You can actually give somebody the gift of truth. And by believing in your messed up words that don't quite get it and they're not quite there and, oh, I blew it in how I said that, through your words, they can believe and have eternal life. Do you understand the power that God has given you in the Holy Spirit? That somehow a lost boy or girl or man or woman can hear your words, words that you thought of in your own brain, believe them, and receive from heaven eternal life. That is insane. That is a miracle. That is the gospel. That is the beauty of the church. The power that God has poured into us through the Holy Spirit. It doesn't always look like fireworks. It's just really miraculous that we can say something to somebody and they can believe in God for the first time. You don't have to go be a sage or a philosopher or study at a seminary for 10 years to give somebody that gift. You can just be you in your context, noticing the intersection between you and the suffering, seizing the moment and doing something good. God can use you where you're at. Colossians 4 and 5, I love this verse, says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer, answer each person. Do you notice that the exhortation there is not like, if somebody comes and asks you, just go point them to a priest because they know. No, it just says be ready. Let your, let your speech always be ready and seasoned with the truth of Christ so that you may know how to answer each person. There's an assumption there that we're going to bump up against people who need the truth and need help. So number four is do something good. And number five, take them with you. Verses 8, 9, and 10. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them. See that? He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. He's not just healed, he's converted. I don't know the mystery there. It doesn't say that the apostle said, your sins are also forgiven. It doesn't say that, but do you think for a moment here this guy is still weighed down by guilt? He knows because of his strong feet that God has accepted him. Okay, and so in the same way that Christ healed that man, forgave his sins, somehow in here God has absolutely forgiven this man's sins. I'm convinced of that. So he gets up and he praises God. He's full of joy. But number five is take them with you. No true gospel presentation comes without some kind of invitation. Some kind of invitation. I just did a a church planting assessment last week, and I had to preach an evangelistic sermon to them, these guys. It was awkward and hard, but they were testing, like, what does this guy think, right? And then I sat down with them for about 20 minutes after with Shannon. She didn't like that exercise at all. But, but I did. 
sort of. It was hard also. But they, they sat there and they pretended to be two lost people who were just like kind of criticizing Christianity and who were uh, non-believers and just kind of a little bit hostile. And how are you going to answer this, Tim? How are you going to answer this? And at one point, uh, we were pretending to be at the Tim Hortons in Smith Falls. And um, at one point I said, hey, like, you know, if you would like, like I could, I could come back here next week with my Bible. We could actually read together if you're interested in that. And they basically stopped the activity right there. And they said, that, that's what we're looking for. You've got, to, you've got to give some kind of invitation. You've got to give some kind of hospitality. Invite them over. Come to their house. Have, like, set up another coffee. Because so often, that's what's effective about sharing the gospel. It's not going to happen in one moment. So, so often, we're looking for, like, this power moment where we give the gospel, and, and they're just flat out, and they repent, and it's like, we want that glory moment, but it doesn't happen like that. So take them with you. If you're sharing Christ with somebody, say, why don't you come over and meet my family or come over for dinner or, hey, I, my church is having a Bible study or you might like our Sunday morning service. You know, our pastor teaches the Bible or whatever. There, there's some kind of drawing that we need to be aware of. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to make people feel too uncomfortable. If they don't want to go, don't force them. But there, there's an invitation there to follow, to come along, to see with you. This is called discipleship. People always ask us, you know, what's our discipleship strategy at Evergreen Chapel? It's when you meet somebody and you know that they need Christ, are you attaching your life to them somehow? Are you giving them an opportunity to spend more time with you? Because you may not be the most mature Christian you know, but you're probably the most mature Christian they know. And that's a big deal. And so, so much of our witness is just kind of attaching our lives with somebody who's lost and showing them a Christian life, walking with them, reading the Bible with them, praying with them if they so desire, inviting them along. I think an invitation and a, and a joining up is one of the principal marks of the true gospel. That the lost and lonely and isolated might come and find family and place among God's people. There's no such thing as giving a gospel invitation. Come and repent and know Christ and like, Hope you find a good church. Even if you don't like your church, invite them to it because they need the family of God. They need the family of God, okay? So, you know, so often we, we, we want to tell people, oh, it's, it's all about just a personal relationship. And it's true. They need a personal relationship, but it cannot stop there. Especially young Christians will die. They will die on the vine if, if they are not plugged in with the family, the body, helping them, discipling them through life's tough questions. So bring people in. And so they go in and he, they, he praises God. Check this out. All the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This Look for this phrase as you're reading through Acts, and I challenge you to do that as we're, as we're preaching through it. Look for that word awe and amazement. That's a sign that God has visited that place. The kingdom has come in some way. Awe and amazement. I'm a terrible entertainer. I'm a terrible communicator by and large. But when God reveals himself, there is awe and amazement. And so if you feel any sense that God has just spoken into your heart and given you life, it has nothing to do with me or the fantastic music you heard before. It's because God has come. 
is because God has spoken. That is what sustains the church and what sustains you in your Christian life. They were filled with awe and amazement. This is how the church continued to grow is because people saw what was happening in the church and they knew this is something special. This is not just another social club. Converts to the faith are the best proof of what we believe. They're the best proof. They're the best proof that God is really who is who he says he was. When people in your community see Joe who was a an addict or a or a, a you know some cocky bugger or whatever and God gets a hold of their life and they are changed that's a testimony to all his friends. What on earth happened to Joe? Cocky Joe or whatever, you know? God is working with people and converts are the best proof of that. So I'll just close with this. Be yourself. Be devoted to God. Be aware of your opportunity. Speak when you get the chance. Do something good and invite people along with you. Friends, this is the, this is the path for ministry. This is the path for witness. Those are all super basic, aren't they? It's just kind of stringing them all together in a way. And so I, I pray that you understand that there's nothing intensely mystical about witnessing to the truth. It begins with being where you are today, tomorrow, wherever. You're already done step one. But be devoted to God in all that you do. Be prepared for those opportunities. Seek them out. And finally, know that only God can do it. You cannot, by all your selfless efforts and wise words and kindness and acts of charity and giving and self-sacrifice, you cannot make somebody come to the cross and repent in Christ. You can't. There's nothing you can do. All of these things are what we're commanded to do. The results belong to God. God draws the heart. God does the work. God brings new spiritual life. We cannot create life. We cannot create life. God can. And so our job is to lead people, I think, to God, where they will, they will be called to know him. And, and so leave that with God. Don't be discouraged by the results. So I was going to skip this passage. I was going to go on to Acts chapter 5, but how important is this for the, for the church, right? We need this. And uh, we're, I'm so thankful for God's word that guides us in simplicity as to living the Christian life. And if you have more questions on this and if there are things that you don't understand or how it applies in your context, please don't be silent about it. Ask somebody who you trust or, or send me an email. The email will be on the board at the end of the service. But um, yeah, it, we, we need to help each other walk this out. We need to work together and, and to encourage each other and pray with each other about these opportunities. And, uh, and God will have all the glory. And so I'm excited for 2019 because what if we obey this? What if we believe this? And what if we strive together to let God do the work and get the glory? Um, what, what, will, what will be said of 2019 in Smith Falls and Evergreen Chapel and, um, and God's people at large in Ottawa Valley? Uh, it's an exciting thought. And so... I want to invite you to join us in that and um, come back next week for more of the book of Acts. Um, So let me pray and then we'll just sing a hymn together and then we'll close.